You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Morning. Yeah. Glad you guys are here this morning. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Jordan. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Redeemer, and I am excited to start our series in the Gospel of Mark. You know, last Sunday was a great day in the life of our church. We spent the first part of the year looking at um, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, really as a way of a reminder of what kind of church we want to be, a church that's built on the blueprint of the patterns and principles in the book of Acts. And last week we saw that that's a church that multiplies and we got to commission uh, a core team of people that have been growing inside this church to go plant Redeemer Hutto. And so those folks are not with us today. They're beginning that work, which is really, really exciting. And then today we begin what will be a long journey for us um, over, who knows, uh, I've got us mapped out through June in the book of Mark, and we're only through chapter six. So we, we could be in Mark for a while. We'll see where it goes, but a long journey in the book of Mark together. And I want to talk a little bit about, about why we're going to be in the book of Mark this year as a church family. Um, just a, a preacher confession here. Um, first sermons in a series are always the hardest. Because for weeks, you've kind of just been thinking about the series, you've been planning the whole, you've been studying the whole book, you've been kind of getting ready, and then you try not to like let all of that stuff come out in the first one, you know? So they're a little bit tricky. Um, But let me tell you a little bit about why Mark, why we are going to be in the book of Mark. Well, first of all, we feel like that God is, as an elder team, really leading us to pray that this would be a year where as a church, we fix our eyes on Jesus, a year where we just really seek Jesus. I love that song that we just sang where it talks about uh, Jesus is calling. I really feel like a year where Jesus is even just calling and saying, see me, remember who I am, fix your eyes on me, as the author of Hebrews would say, the author and perfecter of your faith. And so really after two years of disruptions and pandemic and polarization and division and chaos in the news, the ups and downs with the economic markets, all of it, we feel like God is saying, remember who I am, fix your eyes on Jesus. And so that's what we want to do in Mark. Um, not only what's going on in the world around us, but no doubt that, that there are difficult, complicated things that are going on, even in our own lives. We're all carrying different burdens. We have different struggles. Maybe some of you are facing different sufferings and setbacks. And we just want to remember Jesus, who he really is, why it is that he's come, and what that good news means for our lives in the here and now. Also, as an extension of this prayer, we we're praying that this would be one of the most evangelistic years that we've ever had as a church that we would be a church that really holds up Jesus, not just for our own sake, but for those in our lives, those around us, in our neighborhoods, or those in our family. That, that this would be a series where we don't just see and remember who Jesus is for us, but we remember who Jesus can be, maybe for your kids or for your coworkers, for the people in your life that don't know him and that haven't heard of the truth and the grace, the transforming grace that is found in Jesus. And so we're praying that this would be an evangelistic year, that as we sit and soak in the person and work of Jesus, his words, his actions, that we would also hold out and extend the grace of Jesus to others in our lives. And so that's reason number one. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus this year, and Mark is a great place to do it. The second reason that we're going to be in the gospel of Mark this year is because Mark is really a unique gospel. In other words, there's a uniqueness to the gospel of Mark that I think will help us get after point number one, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Um, Mark was the first of the gospel accounts to be written. And so really Matthew and Luke were kind of built off of 
what we get in Mark. Mark came first, and then Matthew and Luke even expound and fill in more detail and give us different angles of the Jesus story. John came much later and was written with a different purpose, but Mark was the first gospel account written, and it's unique. It's not necessarily a biography of Jesus in the way that we would typically think about a biography. That's, in fact, why Matthew and Luke came along later and filled in more details, because they're like, hey, there's more facts and information about Jesus and how he was born and where he was born, more kind of biographical on the Jesus story. That's not Mark's interest at all. Mark has actually given us more of kind of a, maybe a docudrama would be the best way to say it. In the ancient world, there was a thing that was often written called a bios. Mark's gospel account is a bios of Jesus. What a bios was is it was an account that focused on the essential actions and words, the essential actions and words of an important figure in history. And so this was common in the ancient world to say, here is kind of the core teaching, the core things, the core words of this person that changed the world. And Mark says, here is the bios of Jesus, the most important figure in the history of the world. And so it's unique. It's, um, it's a punchy account, in other words. We, get these, we move from scene to scene at a quick pace, and they're the most important, most essential words and actions of Jesus that we're going to get to look at as we consider who he is and what he's done for us. Mark was written um, by John Mark. Uh, John Mark was close to Peter. Um, John Mark traveled with Paul on Paul's missionary journeys that we read about in the book of Acts. In fact, at the end of Peter's life, John Mark was with him in Rome. He acted as kind of an attendant to Peter, um, a secretary of sorts, a translator, really, in a way. Uh, And that's when Mark was written. It was written in AD uh, 54 to 56, somewhere in that time range in Rome, toward the end of Peter's lives. And in many ways, what we get in Mark's gospel is we get Peter's eyewitness account of Jesus. We get the eyewitness account of Peter in Mark's gospel. Peter is almost in all of the scenes in Mark. Um, Mark, in fact, even in a way, kind of follows Peter's personality. If you're familiar with uh, Peter in in the scriptures, he kind of moves quickly, maybe too quickly. Um, He's super intense. Uh, That's kind of even what we get in the gospel of Mark, a story that is intense and that moves quickly. It follows Peter's personality. Here's a really interesting thing is that some of the themes that we get in the Gospel of Mark actually are some of the same themes that we see from Peter when he's preaching the Gospel in the book of Acts, especially in Acts chapter 10. Some of the same themes. And so it's like we kind of get, we get from Mark, who was with Peter, Peter's preaching and proclamation of the Gospel, what it is that Peter was passing on about who Jesus was. And so one of the things that's super unique about Mark, both in style and in nature, is that it is intense. In other words, it won't let us be indifferent about Jesus. It's going to call us to consider, who is this Jesus? And so I'm excited to dig into this unique account of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, I'm excited to be in it for a while and to move through it slowly. And I just want to pray that as we begin this journey through the book of Mark, that the Spirit would help us see the glory and the grace of Jesus even afresh for some of us, that we would re-encounter Jesus in a fresh way. We'd be met by his grace. Let me pray for us, and then we'll begin this journey in Mark's gospel. Almighty God, we thank you for your word given to us. And as we open it this morning, we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would speak to us, that you would make much of Jesus, that you would open our eyes to see and understand your word, that we would learn some things today as we begin 
this study of the gospel of Mark, but even more than we just would learn some facts, I pray, God, that you would stir our hearts, that you would help us on along this journey to encounter Christ. We do believe that you are calling us, Jesus. You're calling us to see who you are and to experience you afresh and anew, to be met by your grace, to be transformed, and to remember and be reminded of the great work that you've done for us in your life, death, resurrection, and all that that means. And so as we begin this journey this morning, would you lead us, would you guide us, would you be our teacher, Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning, as Catherine read for us, we're looking at Mark's introduction in Mark chapter 1, 1 through 8. So if you have your Bible, open there. Um, it's important for us as we go through this journey, I just want to encourage you to have your Bible with you and have your Bible open as we study Mark. We want to help you do that. We've got some journals, some Mark journals that are out on the resource table in the lobby. And so if you want to walk out on a preacher, now's a chance to do it. You could just, you could just do that, but just come back. But there's some journals that are out there. If you want to take one when you leave, grab it, use it. Basically, it's the little ESV study journal. It's got the, the scriptures and then spaces for you to take notes beside it. We want to just give that to you. We'll have even more of them next week if these run out because we seriously want to say, let's study Mark together. Let's study Mark together. So grab one of those journals, have your Bible out, be ready to take notes. We're looking at Mark's introduction. And Mark is, in his introduction, he is particularly interested in establishing the identity of Jesus right out of the gate. This is important to Mark. Remember, it's a bios. It's the essential actions and words. And so right out of the gate, he wants us to know who Jesus is. The identity of Jesus is the major emphasis of the first nine chapters of Mark. We're going to see it over and over again. In every scene, we're going to be called to consider, who is this Jesus? I like all of you that are walking out on me. I love it. This is great. This is so good. Keep going. Go get one and come back. Um, who is this Jesus? That's the question. That's what we've subtitled even the series over and over again. And so Mark wants to establish identity. He wants us to consider and question and, and really think about the nature of who Jesus is. In fact, um, Mark's introduction, these first eight verses, in a way, kind of remind me of the movie Batman Begins. Do we have any Christopher Nolan fans in the... Yes, okay, good, yeah, yeah. Um, I love Christopher Nolan. I'm not, I don't know anything about him personally, so I'm not uh, making any statement about anything other than I love his movies, okay? And um, I love his movies, and I love what he did with the Batman story, particularly with Batman Begins. And you were probably a lot like me this week. I was iced in at home with my kids for a few days. And, uh, and so it's like, hey, let's rewatch some movies. And so we rewatched Batman Begins. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. And I let my sons watch it for the first time. And I love that movie, and I particularly love what Nolan does with Batman, because what he does with his Batman series is he doesn't start us with Batman in Gotham City doing Batman things. That's typically where most people start Batman. You're like, oh, yeah, he's Batman. And he's, you know, whoever the villain is, the penguin or the Joker or whoever, and he's doing Batman things. Nolan doesn't do that. Nolan actually begins us uh, with Batman before he's Batman. He takes us back and helps us understand his identity. Nolan, in his Batman movies, is primarily concerned with not showing us what Batman does, but us understanding who Batman is. And that's why they're amazing. I love them. In fact, as we were watching Batman Begins with my kids, you know, the first... 30, 40 minutes of the movie, the whole time they're just, they're like, hey, I thought this was a Batman movie. Like, where's Batman? Because you, you don't get any of that. You're trying to figure out who this guy is and why is he in Japan and why is he in jail and like, you know, all these kinds of things. It's giving us the backstory. Now, listen, I am not in any way comparing Jesus to Batman, all right? So that's not what I'm doing. 
What I'm saying is what makes those movies brilliant is that they start by establishing identity. And then we interpret what he does based upon who he is. That is what the gospel accounts do. All of them, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they all start by first establishing identity. This is who Jesus is. Now interpret what he really did in real time, in real human history, in light of this claim of identity. And this is certainly what Mark does. He doesn't waste any time doing it. Right out of the gate, he establishes Jesus' identity. Look back at Mark 1.1. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In many ways, this is a title and subtitle of Mark's bios. And it really is pretty much, this is pretty much the way he titles it. The good news begins. The good news begins in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's saying something is happening in the world. Something new is beginning. Something new is being launched in and through Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's a loaded subtitle, title and subtitle. And so I want to kind of try and understand what this means. And I want to begin with the word gospel. What does he mean when he says the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, you and I, when we hear the word gospel today, there could be a variety of things that come to mind for us. There could be a variety of meanings. In other words, um, words carry meaning, and meaning is often uh, encased in culture and history, right? Tracking with me on that? Words carry meaning, and meaning is often encased in culture and history. So some of us, maybe when you hear the word gospel in your culture, in our time in history, maybe you think about an account of the Bible, like what we're looking at here, a gospel account. That's what you think when you hear the word gospel. Some other people, based upon who they are and their culture and their time and their, their knowledge bank, hear the word gospel, and maybe they think about gospel music. In fact, I had someone tell me one time, they said, hey, I, I saw your church. What do you guys say you're a gospel-centered church? Does that mean that you guys do gospel music? Like That's what they thought. Kind of, that's how the meaning that that word carried. I was like, yeah, we sing about Jesus. Yeah, that's, yeah, we do gospel music. But maybe not gospel music as in the style of music, like what you're thinking about. Words carry meaning. And here's what I would, here's what I would argue. Here's what I would think. That most of us in this room, when we hear the word gospel, we think of the gospel as a concept. The gospel as a concept. What does the word concept mean? Well, it's, it's an, kind of something that's abstract. We think of the gospel as a concept, particularly around this idea, this concept of heaven and hell. I think most people in our culture think of the gospel this way, this concept about heaven and hell. Heaven and hell are real, and when you die one day, you maybe are going to go to one or the other, and so God loves you, though, and so he sent his son, he died on a cross. If you believe the gospel, then you can go to heaven rather than hell. It's this concept of the gospel that I think most of us think when we hear this word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say something. I want to be clear. The gospel of Jesus Christ certainly has implications about life after death. But the way that Mark is using the word gospel here in this account is not a conceptualized gospel. In fact, it's interesting. When Jesus talks about the gospel, when the early Christians talk about the gospel, they very rarely are talking about heaven and hell. In fact, Jesus talks about not heaven and hell as a destination. Jesus talks about heaven coming to where? Earth. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 
So there's something different. What I'm saying is there's something different at play here when Mark uses the word gospel. I want us to try and understand what he means by the term in his time and in his culture, how it was encapsulated there. So when Mark uses the word gospel, here's what he's talking about. For Mark and the early Christians, the gospel was about news. It was about an event, in other words, something that really happened. There's, there's news, it's a message about something that was real, that an act, an event that happened in real time, in real space, that has changed things, that is changing things, and that will change things. Um, commentator Donald English says this, he says, The word gospel in Mark 1.1, as it was originally used, was to announce an epoch-making event. In other words, the word gospel, as it was originally used, was about something that happened that has altered the world. A real historical event that we should now mark time differently because of. Right? And we do, don't we? We mark time now differently because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The whole world has. N.T. Wright says this. He says, N.T. Wright says, What good news... Uh, what is good news? What is gospel in its original meaning? Well, what it regularly does is it puts a new event into an old story. And so it introduces a new period in which instead of living a hopeless life, people are now waiting with excitement for what they know is on the way. The gospel, according to Mark, the word gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not an abstract concept about afterlife. It's news about something that has happened in the real world, something that is breaking in and changing things. And the world now is different and will always be different because of it. Let me give you a couple examples to try and make this sticky, okay? Let me give you a couple examples to help you understand kind of how the first century Christians would have understood the word gospel as news, as an event. Um, how many of you are Dallas Cowboy fans? Okay, good. Yeah, I like it. Here we go. Good. Me too. Um, so if you were like me, you were watching the Dallas Cowboy playoff game a few weeks ago. Um, and I'm sorry I'm bringing up bad memories for you, sad memories. Um, we were watching the Dallas Cowboy game a few weeks ago, and they had a devastating loss um, that involved a quarterback sneak with four seconds left in the game. Uh, doesn't make much sense. And it was just a devastating loss. They lose again. Cowboys lose again. You know, another, we're going to win the Super Bowl. Oh, we're terrible, right? I mean, this is kind of the Cowboys story. This is an old story. Now, imagine with me if we were all watching the Dallas Cowboy game together as Cowboy fans who have been living this old story of Cowboys always disappoint us. And we're sitting in our misery after they lose this game. And then suddenly someone comes running in and says, good news, guys. Breaking news! Good news! And we're like, what? 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 What's the news? Jerry Jones has resigned, and we have a new general manager. Something has happened. Like, something has really happened. And now, that old story, now there's a new story. Something has really changed, and because of that change, there is now hope for our future as Cowboy fans. <laughs> Do you see what I'm talking about? News. Something that's real. Well, this isn't real, but we could hope it was real. Um, something that really happens, that really changes things. That's what N.T. Wright says, where it puts a new story in an old story. Let me give you a better example, an example from history. From 44 B.C. to 31 B.C., uh, there was the Roman Civil War. Any history nerds in the room? Any history buffs? No? Okay. All right. Um, 
44 BC to 31 BC was the Roman Civil War. And the Roman Empire was the most powerful force in the entire world. The Roman Empire conquered pretty much all of the, the known world with their mighty military. But starting in 44 BC, there becomes kind of this internal power struggle within the Roman civilization. And, and so this power struggle breaks out, and it ends up in a, in a war. Uh, maybe most of you have heard of Julius Caesar, right? And, you know, Shakespeare kind of introduced some of these ideas to us. Well, there are, there are two figures. There's Octavian, who was Caesar's stepson, uh, and there was Mark uh, Antony. And they kind of you know, tagged up, tag teamed up to avenge the death of Julius Caesar, and they actually end up winning. Um, but then those two guys turn on each other. And so then there's this 13-year civil war between Octavian Caesar and Mark, Mark Antony. And what ends up happening is um, uh, Octavian Caesar was not really, they didn't really think he would end up winning. They actually thought Mark, Mark Antony would was more powerful. He uh, rallied a huge army in Egypt and kind of what is now the Middle East and Egypt, and he rallied a huge army there. But somehow Octavian ends up winning this battle, and Mark Antony and uh, his you know kind of famous friend Cleopatra they end up committing suicide in Egypt. Okay, so this is all this is this is real history. This is all happening. Um, you probably know about this some of these figures and characters because of Shakespeare. So what does all this have to do with the gospel? Well. If you had been living in the Roman Empire during those 13 years, you would have been anxiously awaiting the outcome of this battle between Octavian Caesar and Mark Antony. And so the time comes, Antony, uh, Octavian wins, and the news needs to be spread with the entire world, with the entire empire. And so what does Octavian Caesar do? Well, he goes back to the capital and he begins a campaign. He sends out messengers, heralds, who will go into the whole world and share the gospel. That's where the word originated in the first century. They would go share the good news, the story of the event that happened. Octavian has won, and now there will be peace in the whole world because Octavian is king. Now, stay with me for a minute. Jesus Christ is born into the world in this context under the Roman rule. And guess who is the ruler of the world? Octavian Caesar. He's changed his name to Caesar Augustus. He's put a guy named Herod to rule as king over the Jews, occupying the Jews in their territory. Herod, by the way, actually was on the side of Mark Antony. And then when he hears that Octavian wins, he does what most smart people do. And he's like, hey, uh, he has a famous line. Hey, don't, don't, don't think about who I was for. Think about how loyal of a friend I was to them. Maybe you've heard that line before. And so I'll be loyal to you. And so, so Caesar Augustus, Octavian, Caesar Augustus basically says, okay, I'll let you rule over the Jews. This is all the backstory, the climate in which Jesus is born. Are you tracking with me here? This is important. This is the context in which Jesus comes onto the scene announcing his gospel, announcing his good news. This is what Mark means when he uses the phrase. It's contextual to that time, that culture, that history. The gospel of Jesus Christ begins, Mark says. The king has arrived. That's what the word Christ means. The anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, is the king. He has come to bring peace to the whole world. In him and through him, the kingdom of God is breaking in. That's what he's saying the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not some theoretical abstract concept about heaven and hell. It is good news about a real event 
that happen that forever changes things for people like you and me if we give our allegiance to Jesus. That's the gospel. Now, Mark wants us to see next that all of this is not random. In other words, Mark says, okay, look, I want to make sure that you understand that Jesus is king, the son of God. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to prove to you how he's king. And that's what the rest of his book is going to do. But he says, but I want to make sure you understand that, he's not, that this isn't all random. Like he's not some religious rando that just showed up onto the scene claiming to be the Messiah and threatening the Roman Empire. Look back at the text. He shows us this starting in chapter 2. Uh, sorry, starting in verse 2. He says, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet. So in other words, he's taking us back here. He's saying Jesus isn't random. He didn't just show up out of nowhere. This is connected to this greater story of the Old Testament, of what God has already been doing even way before the Roman Empire. As it was written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of the one in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord makes, make his path straight. And so in verse 2 and 3, we get quotations from Malachi 3.1 and from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And what Mark is doing is he's pulling this, this story, this bios of Jesus, into the broader message of the Old Testament. Keep in mind, while Octavian and Anthony were duking it out for the power of the whole world, the people of God were under the Roman rule, and they were clinging to a promise, this long-awaited promise that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God promises that he would send a son, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the woman who would be victorious over sin and death and Satan. The Israelites were clinging to this promise, and that promise becomes clearer and clearer and clearer that ultimately it would be this human king, savior king, who would come and would rescue God's people and would rule the whole world. So all of this is happening in real time in history. Mark, Antony, and, and Octavian are battling it out, and yet here are the Jewish people, the people of God, God's people of old, the Old Testament story. They're clinging to this promise that a human Messiah king would come underneath all of it. And Mark is saying, Mark is taking us back. Jesus didn't show up out of nowhere. He's not some religious rando. He's a part of this story that God has been writing in the world. And he says, and so is John. He introduces us to John the Baptist. Look at verse 4. He says, John is essentially the fulfillment of this prophecy that somebody would come and would prepare the way for the king. Somebody would come who would be a herald. Remember how Caesar sent out heralds to proclaim the gospel? Hey, peace is here. Octavian, Caesar Augustus is ruling. Well, he's saying John was the first herald of Jesus that gets sent out. Look at verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming. That word there is literally heralding. It's the same word. He's preaching the gospel in that understanding of the word gospel. He's heralding a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. And now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And so what he's saying here is Jesus doesn't just show up randomly out of nowhere and neither did John. John the Baptist is fulfilling the prophets and he really kind of starts a revival of sorts. There's this revival that breaks out that sweeps over all of Judea and Jerusalem in fact, there's no doubt that Herod, who was ruling over the Jews, would have had John on his radar. John's ministry, it's important what Mark highlights for us is where John's ministry happens. Whereas the other gospel writers will tell us more of what John actually said. Um, 
Mark is more interested in telling us where it all is happening. And so what he's showing us is there's this new kingdom that's breaking in in the middle of this earthly kingdom. And so he says he's baptizing people in the River Jordan, which would have been, if you know much about your Old Testament, you know that is a significant place for the identity in the nation of Israel. You think about Lot, who, uh, who uh, chose the plain of the Jordan in Genesis 13, Jacob, who crossed over the Jordan on his way to meet Esau in Genesis 32, Joshua, who led the people across the Jordan as they entered into the promised land, Elijah and Elijah focused their ministries around the areas around the Jordan. This is a significant place. And so what Mark is saying is that John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Messiah, the king, and he's chosen to do it in the most significant place in Israel's history, the Jordan River. The king is breaking in. And Herod and the Romans also paid attention to this place. This was kind of where the east and the west met each other. And so they would have certainly been paying attention to all of these people, this mass revival breaking out in the wilderness by the Jordan River. But maybe more, even more important in significance than the Jordan River is the phrase, the wilderness, that he is ministering in the wilderness, not in the temple. He's not preaching and teaching and ministering to people, proclaiming the Messiah in the city, but in the wilderness. And what this does is it's calling to mind the story of the Passover and the Exodus, which was celebrated every year by the Jewish people. It is something that they replayed over and over again every year, remembering how God had acted to deliver them from the slavery and the oppression of Egypt. So now there are people under the oppression of Rome, but they are remembering how God rescued them as a people and delivered them and how God will deliver them again and God will rule them again. And so the wilderness calls this to mind, how God defeated Pharaoh, how God saved them by the blood of the lamb and how when he delivered them, he leads them where? Where does God lead them when he delivers them? Into the wilderness. He leads them into the wilderness. And what is the significance of the wilderness? The wilderness is where they, number one, encountered God. They, they, they encountered the real God. They experienced his presence. The wilderness was a place where they, they kind of shed, they were for them to shed the old way of Egypt and learn the new way, learn the ways of God. The wilderness was a place for them to become a people and learn to become a people. And so this is important. What John is doing as he symbolically, by starting his ministry in the wilderness, he's saying, he's saying God is doing something new again. God is bringing deliverance again. God is forming a new people again. God's, God is about to introduce himself to us again. We're going to meet God and learn his ways and become his people. How are we going to do that? Well, we'll talk about this next week, but Jesus shows up in the wilderness and launches his ministry with John. It's pretty amazing what Mark is doing how he's constructed this bios in such a short and punchy way. He's saying here that um, Jesus is not some random religious leader, and John isn't some crazy fire and brimstone preacher who's out in the boonies with a honky-tonk revival. No, John came to ready us, to prepare us to see that God is once again breaking into the world. God is once again offering rescue to people who are in bondage and slavery. He's, me he's saying he's meeting them in the wilderness, but this time it's bondage, not to slavery in Egypt and to Pharaoh, but it's, and it's not even really bondage to Rome. He's offering us rescue to the whole world who is in bondage, who is enslaved to sin and to Satan. A new ruler is here, and his kingdom is breaking in. So, whew, let me sum it all up. 
You're like, bro, that's one verse, man. Can we move on? Um, let me sum it all up. The gospel is not a concept. It's not an abstract concept. It's news. It's something that really happened that can forever change things for you and for me and for our future and for our hope and for our here and for our now. It's something that has happened, that is happening, and that will happen. It is world-changing news, both in the big picture of the, of, of the world and in our worlds. It's world-changing news. Who is this Jesus? What has he done? What does it mean for him to be king? Now, there's one more thing I want to look at. Uh, I wanted to ask the question, what is the content of the gospel? So we know that it's a message, it's news. Um, what is the content of the gospel? What's it about? Well, I wish that Mark gave us more, and I was even tempted here to go outside of Mark to some of the other gospel accounts to fill in the details, but I'm trying to stay disciplined to just preach the text. And so what is, what is the content of the gospel? What does Mark say? Look at verse 7. I want to look at verse 7 and 8, and we'll end with this. What is the content of this good news? Well, we're told that John previews it for us. Verse 7, and he preached, again, heralds. He's heralding. He's going out and telling people about the victorious king that has won, that has come, and that is coming. And he says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. He's saying, I'm not even worthy to be a slave to him. That's what that means. Verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is in many ways like an opening act in a concert. Um, nobody goes for the opening act, but they're there, and they have a role to play. He's like the opening act in the concert. His ministry, again, was that of a herald, one who would go out before the king, who would let everyone know that the king was coming soon, who would say, get yourself ready, get your house picked up, clean up the town square, get ready. The king is on his way. This is what John's role. John's ministry was to give us a preview of what Jesus would bring. And so what we're told from John, what we see in John's ministry as a preview, is that first and foremost, the good news is about forgiveness of sins. We're told that John came proclaiming a forgiveness of sins. He was baptizing people. He was calling people to repentance, to receive the forgiveness of sins. That word repentance literally means turn around. The way you've been going is not the right way. Turn around and follow a new way. Follow the way of the king. Learn the way of the king Jesus. Now, this is interesting because it tells us that the people who were coming out and repenting were being baptized as a sign of that repentance were Jews, okay? Jews would not have been water-immersed baptized. Only Gentiles who were converting to the Jewish faith would have been water-immersed baptized. And so this is stunning what's happening. God is literally doing something amazing here, that these people are coming out and they're saying, I'm actually turning from my way of religiosity. I'm realizing that maybe the Messiah is coming and there's a new way that he's calling us to. Keep in mind at this point that the Jewish people were pretty segmented. There were Sadducees and Pharisees and Zealots. There were all these different people that were kind of saying, hey, this is the way that will bring about the Messiah. And John is coming up and saying, no, none of those are the way. There's actually a new way and people are receiving it and are being baptized in it. This is a pretty stunning claim. People are getting honest about who they really are. They are admitting that they are sinners. They're, they are uh, admitting that, they're, that they're, they're done pretending, that they aren't as good as they like to think they are, that their religious activity isn't enough, that they're being baptized, which again was shocking. And so what's the point? Well, the point is 
is that John is previewing for us what Jesus would bring, which is forgiveness and transformation to sinners, to those who would truly see themselves, who would truly admit their need, confess their sins, and come to him as their source of hope and salvation. Jesus would bring salvation. This is who he is, a savior, a redeemer. And we're going to see that as we go on in this story. We're going to see Jesus, the Savior, the Transformer, the Redeemer of broken people who come to him. Second, we're told that the gospel, the content of the gospel, it's not only about forgiveness of sin, but it's about a new way of life. Particularly, Mark brings this to our attention uh, when he talks about the Holy Spirit. John baptizes in water, but the Messiah, God's King, will bring the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? Well, let me just say this. First of all, what this does not mean is it's not a debate about differences in baptisms, okay? This is not about like, uh, should we be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Should we be baptized by water? This is not a great place, this text, to form a theology of baptism. We should probably do that maybe in the book of Acts or in the New Testament epistles. This is simply what John is saying here. Is John is saying, this is about the difference between not my baptism and Jesus' baptism. This is the difference between me and Jesus. That's the difference. I'm basically dunking you in a river. When he comes, he's going to do something that you can't even yet comprehend, and it's called the Holy Spirit. He is going to immerse you in a newness of life. In fact, the prophets talked about this in Ezekiel 36 and Joel chapter 2, verse 28. They talked about when the Messiah comes, that he would not only come and rule as king and extend his rule to the nations, but he would bring a new spirit. He would give new hearts. He would transform people from the inside out. He would write the law of God on our hearts that he would pour out his presence like wind and like fire. That's what the prophets talked about. And so John is saying, look, you probably can't even comprehend this yet. I'm dunking you in water. When Jesus comes, he's going to do something that's completely out of this world. He's going to offer new life, an entire new way of being a human being. It's a pretty amazing claim. And we'll get into that more next week when we talk about the baptism of Jesus himself. And so here's where I want to close. Mark begins his bios of Jesus here. Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the King, the Son of God, who comes baptizing in the Holy Spirit. There's forgiveness, we're told. There's freedom from sin. There's freedom from a world of sin and death in Jesus. That's what his kingdom brings. Something new is breaking into the world in Jesus. And the rest of the book is going to call us to interpret what Jesus says and what Jesus does in light of this claim. Remember, Batman begins, the good news begins. Mark wants us to ask with every scene that we're going to encounter, who is Jesus? What does this mean for me? Is he really the son of God? Is he really Israel's Messiah that's extended to the whole world? What does he mean? What does this mean? Or is he some religious rando guy who launched a ministry who claimed to be the king of the whole world and got himself killed by the Romans. Who is he? See, Mark won't let us kind of put that question off like it's our tax return. (laughs) Mark actually calls us in every scene to consider it. We can't be indifferent about that question. Jesus is either who he says he is, the son of God, the king of the world, who's bringing God's kingdom to people like you and me in places like this, or he's a fool. Who is he? And so I want to ask you as we close this morning to consider who is Jesus to you? You know, maybe some of you um, 
kind of back to my Batman Begins thing. Maybe some of you, you know, you, you, you're like the Batman movies before Christopher Nolan. You know, like you, you know about Batman and you kind of know what he does, you know, but, but you don't really know who he is. Maybe some of you are like that. Like you know about Jesus, you've known about him. You've known what, he, what he's done. You could even tell some of the stories, but you've never really come to fully understand who he is, that he is a person. And he wants his life to make sense of your life in every way. He's a person for you to know, the son of God for you to relate to, to have a relationship with. Maybe that's true for some of you. I also want to ask you to consider, what is the gospel to you? Who is Jesus to you? And then what is the gospel to you? Is it just some abstract concept about afterlife or is it something real, something that has changed you and is changing you? Is it advice to you? Is it just maybe some good advice or is it something that you're experiencing, experiencing new life every day in the Christ, in the Son of God? Is it conceptual to you or is it a redeeming, transforming hope that anchors your life every day? These are the questions that we're going to explore in Mark. I can't wait. I'm so excited. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this account that we have to tell us about the Son. And so, Father, we continue to pray that as we open this book, as we read it, as we study it, that you would show us with fresh eyes who you are. That we would see, God, not some... Um, uh, some preconceived idea of who Jesus is, but that we would see you in all of your beauty and all of your grace and all of your love and your tenderness and all of your power and might, and that we would see how you call us to come to you, how you've so loved us that you've given of your life to overcome our greatest enemy of sin, Satan and death, how you've come to be wounded so that you could heal, how you've loved those who are far off and broken, Help us, Lord Jesus, to not only receive the good news of who you are for our own sake, but that we would hold you out for others. And that you would even just breathe a fresh wind of just evangelistic fervor in this church as we look at Jesus. That we would be heralds. That we would go out and proclaim the good news of the King, what you've done, and how you've changed things. Now other people could experience new life of forgiveness of sin, new life of redemption, new life of hope in your kingdom here now. God, we love you so much. We thank you for your word. We pray that as we enter into a time of response, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to minister to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.